Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover Crippled America, How to Make America Great Again by Donald J. Trump. This is book 36 of 52 for my 2020 reading list. This episode is part of a special series I'm doing where I'm reading a book by or about each of the four main candidates for president and vice president. So last week I covered Kamala Harris, this week Donald Trump, the following week Joe Biden that will release on Friday, October 23rd, and then in the the final episode of the series which will be on October 30th. I will cover both Mike Pence and Joe Jorgensen. Uh, neither of them have written a book. And so the book, the what I'll, I'll cover Mike Pence is his daughter wrote a book about him. And so I'll read that and then, and then talk about what I learned about Mike Pence from that book. And then for Joe Jorgensen, she is the libertarian candidate. She has not written a book, but I will see what I can find online and then cover her in that episode as well. The election is on Tuesday, November 3rd. I'm going to make as much of an effort as possible not to use any outside information in these episodes. I'm just presenting what I've learned in the book not news sources, family or friends, or, or other, other places. Uh, this episode will follow a very similar structure to last week's episode that was about Kamala Harris. My goal is to present the content in such a way that you cannot tell who I favor. So segment one on this one, we'll, we'll start with personal details. Second segment, professional details. Third segment, top three policy stances and beliefs. And then segment four, the one thing, the main thing that stuck out to me about Donald Trump. So this is a very similar format to last week's episode about Kamala. The book I chose for Donald Trump was Crippled America. Uh, I thought about it. Uh, I, his, ma- his most famous book is called The Art of the Deal, but he wrote that many years ago. And, it, and that one seemed to me to be more about his business and professional life and not as much about politics. Crippled America was written in 2016. So it was right before the election and it, it contains a lot of his policy ideas. So it, it seems like it was just kind of a quick book to get out as he was running for president. And it outlined his his views on, on things. So it wasn't the best book in the sense of getting a clear indication of, of his personal life or who, who he was, how he grew up, that sort of thing. Uh, but it did contain a lot of information on the on the policy side of things. So uh, it was not a very popular book in the sense that um, I, I, I even had trouble finding this one. But um, but that's the reason I chose this one as opposed to The Art of the Deal. Uh, it was pretty funny. Um, I would post that I was reading this book and uh, also post that I was reading books about Biden and, and Kamala and Pence. And people would say, well, why are you reading a book negative about Trump when you're reading the books that Kamala and Biden have written, uh, it, because the cover of this book is Trump and he's just, he's got like an angry face and he addresses it in the intro of the book, but he, he's like, I'm not happy with how America is right now. So, uh, that's why I chose a, a image with a, a mad face. But when, whenever I posted that on social media, people just assumed that it was a negative book about Trump and they questioned, why are you reading a negative book about Trump? But, uh, but books written by the other people. And just to, to, make it clear. I, I didn't, I, I, 
as much as I could write a book that was written by the people, except for the book by, uh, about Pence that was written by his daughter. So it was just kind of funny on that. So here's why he states he wrote this book, and this is from the introduction. This book is designed to give the reader a better understanding of me and my ideas for our future. I'm a really nice guy, but I'm also passionate and determined to make our country great again, end quote. So that's why he wrote it. Uh, it's a short book. It only took me like three hours to read. It's 170-something pages, so it's it's a quick one. Uh, so I'll get into to what I what I learned about Donald Trump in this in this episode. So to start off with the personal, I'm going to read a quote here. I'm going to be reading just a lot of different sections uh, because he speaks pretty quickly, and um, and it it's better just to share what he, <laughs> the way he says it. So here he's saying, uh, those who have watched me fire people on The Apprentice, who have read my best-selling books, or who have attended my learning annex seminars think they know me. Well, they know part of me, my business side. The professional part, I usually don't speak about my personal life or my personal values or about how I came to be who I am today, end quote. So just getting into it, we don't get a lot of details about his his personal life. He doesn't like talking about it. And so I'm going to pull what I can, uh, what was in the book, but uh, not a whole lot to go off here. Just first of all, he was born in 1946. Um, last week I covered with Kamala what, what generation her birth year put her in, where she was generation X. Well, Trump being in 1946, that, that makes him a boomer. He's 74 years old. And what is really interesting to me is that there have been three boomer presidents and they, their birthdays are within three months of each other. So Trump was born June 14th, 1946, George W. Bush, July 6th. 6th, 1946, Bill Clinton, August 19th, 1946. So the, those three presidents were born within three months of each other in the, in the same year, 1946. I also like just thinking about where that places people and that places Trump being born immediately after World War II. So he's, he's born the year after Victory Day. And just gives a little bit of context of, of the generation he's from. Uh, I'll highlight next week with Biden, where he is in a generation that has never held the presidency. We've had three boomer presidents. We've had one Gen X president in Obama, and uh, but zero silent generation presidents. And, and the silent generation is the generation right before boomers. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, more about that one in uh, next week with Biden. His, his parents were Fred Trump and Mary Trump. And here's something he says about Fred Trump, who was a commercial real estate developer. So here's, here's about Fred. Fred Trump, my wonderful, tough but loving father, built, owned, and managed buildings in Queens and Brooklyn. He made enough money to just sit back and relax, but that wasn't who he was. Even on weekends, he'd be walking through a building, a house, or a construction site. If the halls were dirty or a bulb was out, the people working there would would know about it. My father wasn't overly concerned with hurting people's feelings. He wanted the floors to be cleaned, or as he would often say, in mint condition. If the person responsible couldn't keep them clean, he was gone. My father believed he had an obligation to his tenants. His motto was simple. You do your job, you keep your job. Do it well, you get a better job. That always made sense to me. End quote. Fred Trump came from a German family. His, his parents actually came from Germany in 1885. Trump's mother was uh, Mary Trump, and she emigrated directly from Scotland in 1918. So his mother 
immigrant from Scotland, his father, second generation uh, family from, from Germany. His father gave him a loan, and he makes, he makes the distinction it was not a gift, but gave him a loan that, that helped him get started in business, and here's what he said about that. He loaned me a small amount of money, loaned, not gave, around $1 million, money that I probably could have gotten from a bank, and the biggest part of my journey began. I paid my father back a few years later with full interest after my Manhattan deal started to come in, and very successfully. One of them, the Grand Hyatt Hotel, was a big hit. Built by me, on time and under budget, I made a lot of money. He was very happy and even more proud of me than ever before. End quote. His father passed away when he was 93 years old. Trump grew up in Queens, and then uh, he said he was a, a bit of a troublemaker in school, and he went to the New York Military Academy, and that gave him some discipline. For for school, for college, he went to the Wharton School of Finance at the University of Pennsylvania. As for later on in life, after he had kids, he said he would have dinner with his kids every night, uh, no matter how busy he would be. So that was that was something that was a priority to him. He said this, while my older ones were growing up, I'd have dinner with my kids almost every night. When they needed me, I was there for them. And then going on to his marriages. He said, truthfully, I'm a, I'm a much better father than I was a husband, always working too much to be the husband my wives wanted me to be. I blame myself. I was making my mark in real estate and business, and it was very hard for a relationship to compete with that aspect of my life. So that's what he, he had to say about uh, marriage and raising kids. As far as political leanings, he said this, so the establishment attacks me. They can't own me. They can't dictate to me. So they search for ways to dismiss me. They point out accurately for once that at one time I was a registered Democrat. I grew up and worked in New York where virtually everyone is a Democrat. You know who else was a Democrat? Ronald Reagan. He switched and I switched years ago when I began to see what liberal Democrats were doing to our country. Now I'm a conservative Republican with a big heart. I didn't decide to become a Republican. That's who I've always been. End quote. So that's what, uh, describing how he went from being a Democrat to Republican. The last thing I want to highlight about his personal life is his views on religion. He says, I've been asked if I thought the Gospels would have a bearing on my public policy choices. That question has been asked of candidates for political office since Al Smith, a Catholic, ran for president in 1928. Many people thought JFK ended the discussion in 1960 when he said he would be president of all Americans. I am who I am, and deep down, the Gospels helped make me the, that person. In business, I don't actively make decisions based on my religious beliefs, but those beliefs are there, big time. End quote. Now into segment two and the more of the professional details about Donald Trump. So I'm going to start by reading towards the end of the book here where he says, that's why when I hear politicians talking about some trade bill they voted for or how they balance the budget, I really have to laugh. Maybe they have political, political experience, but they certainly don't have common sense or real world experience. Every construction project, every deal is totally unique. Each project is an unbelievable balancing act. I have to bring together the business community, the financial community, and the local officials. I've learned to work with great architects and designers. I've worked out deals with the unions and the trades, end quote. And that's his big push here in the book. And it's kind of the basic premise of, of what he's trying to show. And it's this, 
look at me, look at, look at what I've done. I'm very successful. I have taken broken down, dilapidated buildings, and I have fixed them up and turned them into five-star resorts. To do what I've done, I've had to get groups of people working together to achieve a large goal. Because of that experience, I will be a great leader for this country. That's kind of how he presents everything in this book. And he, he talks about, about, you know, for real estate development, it's b- buildings that are broken and dilapidated. For political things, it's it's leaders who have, have not done their jobs. It's a media that, that has not done their job. And so all these things are broken. And then with his experience, he's going to come up. He's going to be the fixer-upper. And he, he, because of his experience working with various groups, whether it's unions or government or uh, construction or who, you name it, he's got to get, be, get all these people together and, and get projects done. That's, that's his experience. That's, uh, that's what sets him apart. And he's been successful at it. And and so that he just kind of keeps pointing to that throughout the book. As for how he works, this is what he says. So here's the way I work. I find the people who are the best in the world at what needs to be done. Then I hire them to do it. And then I let them do it. But I always watch over them. End quote. As I mentioned before, his father was in commercial real estate. And that seems to to be where where Donald Trump learned a lot. He, He would walk around with his father as his father would go to, to the different buildings and just saw how he operated. And that made a big imprint on him. One of Donald Trump's first projects was the Commodore. It was an old building that he turned into the Grand Hyatt uh, near Grand Central Station. And this is what he said about that. The hotel, the Grand Hyatt, has, has been successful since the day it opened in 1980. It became the foundation for the restoration of the entire Grand Central neighborhood, as well as my calling card, introducing the Trump quality brand to the people of New York. That project marked the first time I took a large-scale failing project property and made it great again. As part of the deal, I fixed up the great Grand Central terminal itself. It looked beautiful and clean again. I've done it over and over again in the 35 years since, and now for the really big and important one, our country, end quote. So again, that's where his, his uh, motto comes in of, of make America great again. That, that's kind of how he views what he, what he does on the construction and real estate side of things, making these projects great again. One of the things he's, he's very proud of is, um, is women in leadership, the women he's hired, and he said he's been doing that the whole time of, of putting women in leadership roles in the companies that, that, he, that he has. So here's, here's one thing he says towards the end of the book. None of the, pe- none of the people who whine about the way I, I talk to women mention the fact that I voluntarily, ver- voluntarily promoted gender equality in a male-dominated industry. The women who work and have worked for me will vouch for the fact that I was as demanding of them as I was of their male counterparts. That's the kind of gender equality we need, leadership that inspires the best in people, male or female, end quote. As I said, I think the Art of the Deal book that he wrote uh, before, before this one would get more into his professional life. So this one didn't have as, as many details. He, I will get into it a little bit later, uh, a little more about his professional side of things. But, um, but for now, that's kind of the main things that he wrote about in, in this particular book. Now into segment three in Trump's policy and beliefs. 
What was interesting is he, at the beginning of the book, he talked about how he would gauge the importance of issues by the crowd response he would get when he would talk about them. And so he realized early on that immigration was something that would get a lot of crowd attention. And so he would just, he, he would use the crowd noise as, as a gauge. That, that was kind of his focus groups uh, to see what was, what was important to people. The book itself is broken up into chapters that mostly dealt with different policy issues. So one chapter would be about education, another about immigration, another about healthcare, and then he would spend a lot of time on what was wrong. So kind of back to the previous segment where he was relating it to the buildings that he had worked on. It was the dilapidated building, it was the dilapidated government, or it was the media, or it was the, and he would point to these different things and what was wrong. Uh, he'd point to the current administration at that time and, and say, this is what they're doing wrong. And then he, he would spend a lot of time on that. And then he would give kind of a few ideas of how he would fix it. So overall, there weren't a ton of details. Uh, for instance, for healthcare, he'd say, he, he said, I would repeal Obamacare and open up competition across state lines for, for the insurance companies. But that's about all that you saw. There, there weren't like a detail. It wasn't a detailed plan for for what was going to take place. Instead, he would he would kind of say, "This this is more about getting the smart people in the room and figuring it out." So here are a few few ideas. But really, what I'm going to do is just get a bunch of smart people in a room, have them figure it out until they they come up with a with a solution. So that that's the structure of the book. Within that, I'm going to highlight three different policy stances that that stood out to me. And again, I'll, I'll just kind of share a lot of what he writes about those. So the first is immigration. And right away, he makes a clear distinction. He says, I am not against immigration. I love immigration. What I don't love is the concept of illegal immigration. And so he starts off by giving some of the, of the numbers. And he says this, everyone has heard me talking about our immigration problem. Well, there's an important reason that people are willing to risk their lives to get into this country. In 2015, more than 4.4 million people had applied and were waiting to legally emigrate to the United States. That list even includes more than 50,000 Iranians. For, for people coming from some countries, the estimated waiting period is 33 years. We also have somewhere between 12 and 15 million people here legally on green cards or temporary visas. Nobody knows how many Ill illegal immigrants are here, but the usual estimate is more than 11 million people. End quote. So that, that gives some of the numbers of uh, uh, putting things into to perspective. His main idea for immigration is to start by enforcing the existing laws. He says we're either a nation of laws or we aren't. He does not like the idea of of people coming here to study for school, graduating, and then leaving. He says we need to make it very easy for those graduates to remain here. But most of the time they are law-abiding and they, they go home and, and they try to get through the process. He said it, they should make it much easier for graduates to, to stay here and not use the education they just got and, and compete against the United States. Here is just where he kind of lays out his immigration policy. 
My immigration policy is actually pretty simple. We need to make changes to our laws to make it easier for those people who can contribute to this country to, be, to come here legally while making it, making it impossible for criminal elements and other people to get here illegally. I want good people to come here from all over the world, but I want them to do so legally. We can expedite the process. We, we can reward achievement and excellence, but we have to respect the legal process. And those people who take advantage of the system and come here illegally should never enjoy the benefits of being a resident or citizen of this nation. So I'm against any path to citizenship for undocumented workers or anyone else who is in this country illegally. They should and need to go home and get in line, end quote. The next thing was education. And again, that was one of those chapters where there wasn't a lot of details uh, other than I'm going to get a bunch of smart people in a room and they'll figure it out. Uh, but the things he did say were for education, it needs to be run locally as much as possible. And then in terms of student debt, he says, we cannot eliminate the student debt, but we should help out as much as we can. And then the final thing was judges. And the reason I highlight this is it, it contrasts with with what Kamala said and what uh, what I highlighted in last week's episode. So first he says this. Uh, that means putting judges on the bench who will uphold the law rather than look for loopholes or try to make law. We need to appoint justices, not just on the Supreme Court, but throughout the entire federal system, who will leave lawmaking to the legislature, legislators as specified in the Constitution. The next president may well have the opportunity to appoint two or more Supreme Court justices. These appointments could determine the direction of the court for several decades. We need the right caliber of judge sitting in the highest court. And end quote. And so he was obviously right on the two or more Supreme Court uh, appointees. And then the last thing he said about judges here, meanwhile, the Supreme Court has decided in their infinite wisdom to fill the breach by making social policy rather than defending our most precious historic assets, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, end quote. So those were a few of the policy issues that he discussed in this book. I think the benefit of reading this book, having been written right before he was elected president, is that you get to read it and then see, okay, here are his ideas. Here's what he says he's going to do. And then now you can look three plus years later and see how he has done on those, on those issues, the things he said he would do. So in that sense, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's a, a neat way to, to look at it, of reading it and then as opposed to, to reading a, a brand new book by him. Uh, for, for next week's episode with Biden, the book I read by him was written in 2008. So that was also very interesting because now, you know, it's, it's a long time since then and you get to see a lot of, of what his ideas were and, and what, he's, what he's done with them. Now, in the final segment here and the one thing, the one thing that stuck out to me about Donald Trump, and it's this, it's just the sheer amount of things he has done in his life on the, on the professional side of, of things. Uh, at, the, at the very end of the book, he has my personal finances, and then he has a list of the different properties that he owned, that he owns or has developed or has managed in, in his life. And the list is just enormous. I mean, if any one of us just had one of these, we'd be we'd be set for life. Um, so let me just jump around. Trump International Hotel and Tower, New York. Trump National Golf Club, Colts Neck. Trump National Golf Club, Los Angeles. 
Golf, Trump Golf Links at Ferry Point. Trump Seven Springs, Bedford, New York. Trump Hotel, Rio de Janeiro. Trump International Hotel, Trump Tower, or Tower, Toronto. Trump Tower at City Center. Trump International Golf Club, Dubai. Miami. Mumbai. Uh, I mean, just all over the world. And, and then the, the very last thing he says, corporate aircrafts owned by Donald J. Trump, Boeing 757, Cessna Citation X, and three Sikorsky 76 helicopters. On the net worth side, the personal finances, uh, just some numbers here. Residential properties, $334 million worth of residential properties, and that's just in New York City. Properties under development, $301 million. Club facilities and rent-related uh, re- real estate, $2 billion. Real estate licensing deals, brand and branded developments, $3 billion. And uh, just the, the list goes on at the very bottom of, of his um, personal finances. He says, over the last five years, in excess of $102 million has been contributed for, for charitable contributions by, by Donald Trump. It, I guess it just struck me because to to manage that number of properties to to do that amount of work, you have to delegate, and so he he has had to put together teams to do these jobs. And I knew he was in real estate. I knew he was in development, but but just to see the sheer number of projects was ju- it just. It blew me away, and it's the it's the one thing that stuck out to me in this book. I've I've heard a lot of the policy uh, beliefs and and his stances on those, so those I guess didn't stick out to me as much as just seeing the the uh, the balance sheet and and the projects he's worked on. Um, it, it's it's quite amazing. So I hope in this episode you got to know Trump a little bit more. Uh, I wish there had been a a book that was a little more expansive on his his personal life and and maybe more. Uh, details about his his professional life as well, but uh, I, I'm going with what with what was in this book. And next week I'll be covering Joe Biden, and I will try to keep a similar format. After that, Mike Pence and Joe Jorgensen, and that will be right up to the election on November third. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. Let me know what you thought about this episode or any of the other ones. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at booksoftitans.com forward slash support. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. The website is stock full of resources to help you find books and to create a reading list. I'll be back next week discussing Joe Biden's book, and that will be the the third of a series of four episodes. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.